Hello, everyone, and welcome back into the unofficial Magic the Gathering audiobooks podcasts. Your humble narrator, Phil Dawson here, hoping you are enjoying time streams. Again, for the next few episodes, you're going to hear me invite, ask, heck, I'll even beg for your support on the Patreon, as I have a goal to reunite my wife with her best friend by her birthday in October. We did welcome another patron, Brandon, by the way, who joined up in the $3 tier, and we have tiers to fit all budgets. So if you have the means... It would mean a lot to me as I'm trying to help my wife see her best friend for the first time in three years, ever since we moved here to Japan. Uh, Japan itself is another great reason to join the Patreon. While I'm reading these wonderful novels, this project is just a shared side joy as I live, work, starting a beer brewery and company over here. And I share a lot of what's happening with that journey on the Patreon as well. And again, any potential earnings that come from that for the next few months, all is for making the year. For these two so i kindly ask for your support there again you can find the patreon link in the show notes you can also search phil dawson on patreon.com and it's be, be very much appreciated so thank you you ready to roll let's do it Chapter 10 They sat at Joyra's bedside, the makeshift infirmary. No pallet, no cot, here she had an actual bed. Barons volunteered by him for the purpose. The infirmary was soon to be a kitchen attached to one end of the great hall, but now, amid newly mortared fireplaces and stacks of iron, worked spits and grills and pots, she lay in coma. She was the only one injured in the wreck of the dirigible, all the others were killed, except Urza. He and Baron sat on cook stools just next to the bed, and they spoke in low tones. She's become another Teferi, Baron said sadly. Three months and still no response. Lying there, an arm's length away, but unreachable. Urza watched the still woman, his eyes glimmering darkly. Physically, she is well. You saw me lay hands on her. You saw the wounds close and the breath begin again. She was whole the moment I laid hands on her. Can't understand why she does not awaken. Her wounds are deeper than you can reach, my friend, Baron replied. He fondly brushed her hair back from her forehead. Her face was losing its olive patina after all this time beneath roofs and blankets. Her hair was darkening from the roots outward. It was as though the years were being one by one revoked from her and she was becoming again a mere child. She survived old Telaria through ten years of abandonment, isolation, and want. Then we came back, and we all thought she would return to us, but she didn't. Khan was her only friend. She was withdrawn and haunted. Every time she saw Teferi, spoke of him, thought of him, the horror of those ten years came welling back. She felt trapped, like him, arm's length away from us, but always alone. She could stay in this coma forever, Urza said. No, she is fighting. Either she will win or lose. It will not be forever, but it may be a long time. Last time, she fought for a whole decade. Urza lifted his eyes, seeming to see straight through the wall and even through an oblique curve of the world to some dazzling place that lay beyond it all. Sarah's realm once restored my health. I would take her there at once if Sarah remained. If the place weren't shrinking, if I hadn't led Phyrexia to it. A cloud passed over his features and they grew iron hard. We have to keep up the fight. Everywhere I have gone, those monsters have followed. Everyone I have befriended has been wounded or killed by them. 
I would destroy myself if I knew it would stop them, but they will never quit. I must fight them as long as I live. And what if you die before they are defeated? Baron asked soberly. Who will fight them then? All light fled Urza's face. It was as black as a mask. Yes. Who then? Karn heaved the massive keystone into position atop the archway. The stone grated against its neighbors. Sand sifted down from its settling bulk. Silver hands lingered in uncertainty on the huge block. Does it look straight? Behind him, Baron looked up from Malzra's field table and squinted along a sight line. The keystone gleamed like a jewel in the morning sun, its polished edges reflecting the Tower of Artifice and the Tower of Mana in the background. Yes, Karn, it looks straight. The silver golem nodded, then asked, Will it stay put? This time, Baron was too busy with his sketches to look up. Of course it will stay put. He sighed. The stack of floor plans and elevations before him were the latest creations of Urza for his new academy. Already, after five years of intensive, year-round building, the school was nearly as extensive as it had been in its previous manifestation. Dormitories, lecture halls, laboratories, great halls, guard towers, curtain walls, gates, gardens, and now a new infirmary. Not that many of the Academy's 190 students were ill or injured. Most were too young to have any serious health problems aside from homesickness. Whatever injuries or illness occurred were treated with placebo pills, gauze, and Urza's healing touch. No, this grand new two-story infirmary was not so much a necessity as it was a monument to the school's perpetual patient. Joyra had not awakened. She had indeed become another Teferi. For his part, the young man was now wrapped in a wet cloak and beginning a tumble that would take him another handful of years to complete. Joyra had meanwhile grown pale, her hair dark brown again. She did not awaken. Baron had discovered that water from slow time rifts helped to sustain her health, and Urza provided his healing touch daily. Nothing improved. Urza had devised a machine that liquefied whatever food was offered in the great halls and pumped it into her stomach. Karn, meanwhile, had developed the habit of picking wildflowers for her from the hillsides of Angelwood and bringing them to her bed. He too often stood vigil there, choosing to spend his nights in her company instead of deactivated. Her plight weighed heavily on Baron and Karn as they worked on the new building. Both moved sadly and slowly, as though building a mortuary rather than an infirmary. There was anger in them too, frustration at their inability to save her. Karn trudged up beside the desk and stood, gleaming in the bright hot sun. Baron shielded his eyes from the glare and said irritably, Can't you let yourself tarnish a little? Master Mulser forbids it, Karn replied truthfully. Then, with a tone of sarcasm he'd been slowly developing over the last fifteen years, he said, It would bother you less if you wore a sack over your head. Baron cast a reproachful look at the golem. I think it's maybe time to design a new helper, one with thicker skin, if that is possible. If you're after compatibility, try a helper with a thicker skull. Thicker than Artie's shovel heads. The fairy was a better companion than you. An old shoe is a better companion than you. A sudden buzz tore through the air between the two. They shied instinctively back, gaping at the empty space. Something darted, the size and speed of a falcon above the treetops. It circled and dived down toward them again. It glinted metallic. Baron swore, stepped to the desk, and hauled a sword from it. As the thing swooped by again, he swung the blade. It cracked against the silvery shoulder of the device, but the metal bird soared again, ripping leaves from their bows as it shot through the forest. The rattles of its passage faded briefly, then returned with a swift crescendo. Growling, Baron hefted his blade again and watched the mechanism shriek inward. Karn stepped into the path of the attacker. He reared back, 
ball to fist and hurled a massive thing at the flying target. It crashed amid a jangle of silvered struts and sprung coils. The artifact creature fell back in the dirt. Its metallic wings glinted, shuddering to either side. Spikes thrust outward all across it. An assortment of round, rending blades emerged, whirling violently. Astonished, Baron and Karn gazed at the broken mass as it whined furiously. They were so amazed by the display that neither noticed Master Mulzra approach from behind. The artificer watched with amused interest. It was only when the mechanism had nearly spent itself and shimmied into stillness that the Master spoke. It was only a prototype. The final falcons will stoop at hundreds of miles an hour on the gorge, arriving even before the sound they make. They will smell Phyrexian glistening oil blood, home in on it, penetrate the beast's hide, and begin a shredding procedure. Panting heavily, Baron turned toward the man. How many of them will you build? As many as I can, given our supply of Thran power stones. If I could only design and build my own stones, I could fill the skies with these creatures. Could perhaps protect the whole world. With the stones we have, and the ones I hope to uncover at three Thran sites I have found, I can perhaps make a thousand. Three Thran sites? Baron asked, eyebrow canted. You're planning on sending students to dig? Yes, Malzra replied. They'll be taken abroad, new Talaria, and the ship will return with a new load of students whom I've chosen from the best and brightest the world has to offer. I have the itinerary right here, and since I myself need to remain for research... Yes, yes, Baron replied irritably. How many years will I be away this time? Teferi is covered in your robe now, Karn said gently. He sat by Joyra's bedside in the completed infirmary. He's not being burned anymore. You've saved him. He didn't add that the boy would likely rise now and make his way toward the outer world and be killed in the curtain of time. Joyra was too fragile to bear that sort of news. She looked pale and small in the bed. Her arms and legs were weak from years of stillness. Her eyes were lost beneath the lids forever closed. Her mouth was red where the tube of Malzra's feeding machine descended. The new students are arriving today, Karn said, changing the subject. Baron has been out collecting them the last three years. Karn glanced up at the rafters of the building. The academy was at last complete. Malzra had ceased his new building designs. He now poured all his energy in the arsenal he was creating to eradicate the Phyraxians in the gorge. He spoke of the battle as a dress rehearsal for global conflagration. It was his new mania. The minds of all the scholars and students were trained on the task. One team had developed a battery of long-range ballistae, which were stationed in a ring around the site and were employed in a day-and-night peppering of the fortress. Another crew had devised a set of catapults, which delivered powder bombs as quickly as they could be concocted. Rivers had been dammed and diverted away from the gorge to empty the Phyrexian fish hatcheries and starve them. Meanwhile, every student spent hours every day assembling the delicate and complex clockwork falcons Malzra had designed. He would do just about anything to slay Phyrexians. On the other hand, in these ten years, what had he done to save Teferi, or Joyra? Reaching in delicately, Karn grasped the tube that ran from Malzra's feeding contraption into Joyra's stomach. Bracing himself, the silver man hauled slowly on it, withdrawing the hose. It emerged with a jolting, sucking motion. Karn set the tube aside and said gently, Come with me. He lifted her limp form in his arms and with reverent step carried her out the door. It was a long walk past the towering buildings of the new academy and through the western gate. No one stopped him, though everyone stared. Karn was well known among the students and scholars, the ever-present builder and guardian. Joyra was known too, the never-present ghost of the former island. 
In all accounts, they were dear friends. Half of those who glimpsed the pair believed she had died at last and he was taking her to be buried. The other half assumed Karn was acting at the bidding of the inscrutable master. Karn carried her away for his own purposes and hers. Bypassing the killing time pits and pinnacles, the Silverman bore Joyra through the thick forests of Talaria, across tan shoulders of sandstone and to the secret niche she had kept on the western edge of the island. Her things were still there as she had left them ten years ago, as she had left all of Talaria ten years ago. It is time for you to come back, Karn said heavily. He brought her to the sunny ledge of sandstone where she had loved to stand and gaze out to sea. He climbed onto the stone and sat down. Joyra was small and cold, cradled in his lap. Salty air rose warmly around them, lifting and gently tossing Joyra's hair. The laboring waves below worried stones to pebbles and pebbles to sand. The sky was endless in blue. Mountain ranges could slid in slow panorama through it. On the horizon of the vast ocean, a tiny white tail shone, the returning new Talaria. You always said you would be here, on this stone, when you would first see your soulmate arrive. He glanced down at her unmoving form, and desperate sadness welled in his voice. Wake up, Joyra. You have slept too long. Only her hair moved, lifted by the caressing breeze. You have to come back, Joyra. Despite his best intentions, Master Malzra has turned the school into a fortification. The students into a young army. He's bringing more students to do the same with them. Karn gazed desolately at the pounding waves. You wouldn't have allowed that. You were the soul of this place. Remember how I was before Master Malzra gave me that dark crystal? What he called an intellectual and affective cortex? Remember what I was like before I had a soul? That's what the island is like without you. Still, there was only the slow shift of breath in her, the arms and legs in languid repose. Look out on that huge dark sea. You see that scrap of white? Is Talaria's hope returning? I know you've been far away. I know your soul feels tiny, lost amid rolling breakers and heaving gales. But it is our best hope. Return! There came a fluttering at her eyelids. Karn held still, not daring to believe. Joyra's breath deepened, and she seemed to settle against him. Her eyes again were closed. If, if you don't wake now, you may miss your soulmate. I've dreamed. A voice came, as thready and elusive as the wind. I've quested. I know how to break through. What? Karn blurted stupidly. He peered at her, but she was unconscious again, her figure as limp as the wet cloak she had thrown over Teferi. Karn stood up, the woman in his arms. He felt as though he had a heart in his chest for all the thrumming ache of it. Was she awakening, or was it only the wishful thinking of a silver man given to fantasy? Feeling as though his burden had doubled, he staggered back toward the distant academy. Which healer would know how to waken her again? What if she never woke again? How had he lived these ten years without her? Crick stood in the midst of his deep mutant lab, sunk in the lightless bedrock beneath his castle. For twenty years the spot had been exposed, no longer shielded by water, ever since Urza Plainswalker had diverted rivers from the gorge to kill off the fish they ate. Crick had dammed the far end of the gorge, thereby making a shallow, stagnant lake where at least scavenger fish could be bred from the waste poured into the pool. For forty years, powder bombs and ballastate bolts had rained down on their heads. 
Urza must have been clearing the island's fortress as fast as he had cleared Argoth's. None of it, not brimstone hail, lightning shafts, flood, nor famine, had reached this deep cavern and its precious contents. In great vats of obsidian, melted and cast for this very purpose, Crick's latest generation of negators was gestating, maturing. Vast, pulpy heads, hideously distorted bodies, arms as sharp and thin as swords, legs that could lope at the speed of jackals, clawed feet that could crush a man's skull as if it were merely a melon. In two years, this sixth batch of modified negators would be ready to emerge from their vats, full-formed, ready to scale the walls of the gorge and struggle through the vast rending curtain of the time that surrounded them. Perhaps they would die, like the five previous harvests. Perhaps they would win through, too weak to hunt down the man at the heart of Crick's torment. The man? The god. Whatever happened, Crick had already harvested their flesh, sampled it, improved on it. The seventh batch would be stronger yet and ready in another decade. In no more than twenty years of Urza's time, his beautiful garden academy would be overrun with Phyrexians, bred to walk uninjured through the worst time storm, and this was the best part, bred to be utterly faithful to their master, Crick. To them, he was more than an ancient sleeper, more than an indomitable and unkillable warlord. To them, he was a god. He was Yogmoth incarnate. It had been six months since Joyra had first reawakened in the silver arms of her old friend. The healers and Malzra himself had been incapable of reviving her, despite their intense and sometimes rigorous interventions. Karn's touch had worked the magic their hands could not, bringing her around again a week after the first occasion. The moment of lucidity had been brief and feverish, but Joyra again said she'd been on a vision quest and had seen a way to break through. To this cryptic revelation, she added that she knew how to save herself, and to Fairy, then she lapsed back into unconsciousness. Since that time, Karn had refused to aid in any more war efforts. He spent his time sitting at her side, gently speaking to her through the long hours of night, telling her anything he could think of, even reading stories of Shiv from the Academy's library. It was just like in the old days, the two of them making a home for each other, withdrawing from the ignorant outside world that recognized and welcomed neither of them. Joyra responded, Soon, she had awakened every hour or so and remained awake for minutes at a time. Karn forced broth and bread into her on these occasions, refusing to allow Malzra's tube to be in her throat anymore. In another month, she had been able to sit up and her arms and legs had grown stronger. At that point, she had called for paper and writing implements and tools. She sketched out a complex machine that even Malzra could not quite visualize, long tubes and a pump chamber with large gears bearing huge sails of gauze windmilling up from wide troughs, a massive turbine driven by teams of workers. When Baron and the other scholars expressed their reservations about the large, costly design, none of them spoke of dream delirium, but the thought lingered in their words. Karn gathered a passel of young, bright students from the new batch that had arrived on the island. He brought them to the infirmary and equipped them with whatever tools and resources Joyra directed. They worked tirelessly, these children, forever guided by Joyra and her vision. Three months later, their creation was wheeled to the center of the slow time sloth where the Teferi Monument stood. The creator was also wheeled to the spot on a cart Joyra had modified for the purpose. The whole of the academy gathered as the woman's young protege rolled long, flexible tubes out of the slow time area over the hills to a nearby rift of extreme fast time. While they worked, discreet murmurs of dubiety circled among the crowd. Joyra rolled herself up beside the hulking machine she had first glimpsed in her coma. She rapped on the side of a metal reservoir. The thunderous sound drew the attention of the group. 
As they quieted, she began to speak. The principle is simple. Water resists time change. We have witnessed this. We survivors of the first academy use the properties of slow time water to stop aging. So too, fast time water is reluctant to give up its pulse. This machine draws fast time water from a nearby rift that contains an underground spring. The pumps here fill the reservoir with water. These set of cranks then power the wind turbine and the gauze sails. The windmill blades dip into the reservoir, drawing water into the gauze. Wind from the turbine blows through the gauze and produces a thick fog of fast time water. The saturated fast time cloud will create a safe corridor of passage into the time pit where Teferi is, and safe passage back out again. Silent doubt gave way to silent admiration. Have any organic creatures successfully passed in and out of this fast time cloud? Baron asked sensibly. Joyra's countenance sagged. This machine is the result not of artifice alone, but of vision. Get to vision. We have not tested the device on living creatures, no. I will enter it, Karn said, his voice like the quiet rumble of gravel in a breaking wave. I was made to withstand temporal distortions that would kill any living thing, and I believe in get to vision. Baron, looking chagrined, continued his objections. Yes, Khan, but just because you might be able to walk safely into the pocket that holds Teferi does not mean he could walk safely out again. It was Karn's turn to stare downward in defeat. I will go with him, came another basso voice, and all attention turned to the bright-eyed and bearded speaker. Master Mosra, Baron protested. It's out of the question. We need further tests, animal tests, before any of us step into this cloud... I believe in this machine, Mauser responded simply. It is a fine design. It is the first glimmering that any of us have had about crossing severe rifts. I believe in this machine, and, he paused to send a mocking wink in Baron's direction, since I am the reason Teferi is caught there anyway, I owe it to the lad to help get him out. He gestured toward Joyra's protégés, clustered in, anxious not beside the pump mechanism. Fill the reservoir. Brightening, Joyra nodded toward the students, who began plying the pumps with all their might. The tubes hissed and gurgled for a time before the first brown splashes of water entered the reservoir. The liquid spattered the base of the trough and immediately evaporated, leaving a residue of dry dust. Joyra was distressed to see this, but Malzra crossed to her and patted her shoulder. It just shows that the water retains its fast-time properties. Be patient. The pumps will do their work. It is a very good design. Water flooded up from the pump tubes and rushed out along the base of the trough. It shimmered and splashed with preternatural speed, rectangular waves coursing over its rising surface. The students continued their work at the cranks. The water level rose. It seemed to be teeming with fish, so energetic was its surface. It reached the halfway point along the wall of the reservoir and crept upward. The crowd around the tank watched in anticipation. Malzra stood beside Karn as the gauze-covered blades began to windmill through the trough. After a complete revolution of the blades, workers manning the turbine began cranking. A hot, unnatural wind jetted from one end of the device, striking wet gauze and sending a thin spray outward. Wind bore the vapor along, spotting flagstones between the machine and the alcove where Teferi huddled beneath his soaked robe. The spray entered the slow time pit and crept slowly over him. Those gathered near the shrine strained forward to make out any movement across the crouched figure, the shift of wet fabric, the quickening of drip lines. As the crank team set up powerful rhythm, the mist thickened into a white wall of fog, opaque and dazzling in the sunlight. Joyra nodded to Malzra. He studied the roiling wall of fog before him. It churned in a dizzy dance, the suspended particles of water as vital as they had been in the trough. Well, Khan, it seems creature and creator will step together into this time machine. The silver man stared at the turgid mist. 
I can proceed you and provide report. Malzra flung away the suggestion with a simple shake of his head. We go, side by side. With that, the two strode to the rolling edge of the fog and stepped inside. The mist enveloped Karn with sudden force. It felt like the rush of seawater where he had fallen into it from his time travel cone. He could sense the wet flagstones beneath his feet, but the fog tore over him like a gale. Bracing himself against the rolling blast, Karn reached a hand outward to make certain Maldra was beside him. Through the impenetrable white air, as thick as paint, it was impossible to see the man. The buffeting wind coursed around something solid. Karn's hand swayed outward and struck another hand, reaching. Malzra took hold of the silver man's fingers and clung tightly. The wind slackened, the violent forces tearing along Karn's armor plating diminished to a washing flood, and then a gentle caress. Malzra's voice sounded pinched as though he were caught in a great vice. The time differential is leveling off, Karn responded easily. You're having trouble breathing. I don't need to breathe, came the reply. Again, the wind softened. We should walk. We are nearly time adjusted now. Hours will pass in the outside for every few minutes we spend in here. Shoulder to shoulder, they pressed forward in line with the sifting fog. Though time in the fog was compacted, space remained constant. In only five steps, white mist turned to gray, and they could sense the looming corner behind the Teferi Shrine. The boy himself lay in a barely distinguishable huddle on the ground. Karn was thankful he hadn't stepped on him. It might not have mattered. Teferi didn't appear to move beneath that wet cloak, except that he was panting. Teferi, Malzra said. The old roundness returned to his voice. Rise! We have come to take you out of here. A small shiver moved through the cloak, and a young, breathless voice emerged. Who are you? Angels? Malzra laughed, but it was Karn who replied, It's me, Tiveri. It's Artie Shovelhead. I'm here with Master Malzra. The boy tugged the cloak back from his head, stared into the thick darkness. He could not have seen more than a pair of towering figures wrapped in a dense fog. What is happening? There was a big lightning bolt out of the clear air and thunder so loud I couldn't hear it. And everything was flying and burning, even me. Once I could get my feet under me, I ran. Everything was blinding and boiling hot. Then all of a sudden comes this darkness. And you two. We've come to take you out of here, Malzra repeated. The gray cloud around them suddenly dimmed and grew black. Night had fallen in the world outside. Only the glimmer moon, streaking bright beyond the fog, lit the niche. Feeling a new urgency, Karn reached down drew off the cloak and lifted Teferi by his hand. Come along. Hurry now. Joyra's waiting. Joyra? The boy said as he staggered to his feet. I'll be glad to see her. Come along. After the first hour of cranking, I moved among the crowd, organizing the students into teams that took shifts, powering the pumps, windmills, and turbines. If the flow of fast-time fog had ceased for only a moment, Urza, Karn, and Teferi could have been torn to shreds on the verge of their time pit. The teams worked all through the night. I fortified them with a number of white mana spells I know. All the while, Joyra and I remained beside the machine to monitor it for stresses and possible breakdown. No crises came, as Urza had said. It was a good design. The real crisis was one of hope. It had occurred to me that after the first hour that Urza and Karn might have been torn to pieces by the time cloud only moments after entering it. 
They might be lying dead just within the wall of steam, unseeable to us. How long would we keep up our labors? Days? Weeks? Months? I could tell that these same dark musings were plaguing Joyra, though neither of us voiced our concerns. It was the middle of the next morning before I overheard these questions muttered among the crank teams. It had been a weary and sleepless night for all of us, the fatigue of labor overlaid with the fatigue of welling doubt. How long do we keep this up? I asked Joyra quietly during the blazing afternoon. We keep it up until the machine breaks or the master and Karn emerge. I felt heartened by her words. Here was a woman who had struggled out of a ten-year coma to design a machine worthy of Urza himself. A quick march up over the hill told me our labors would soon end. The water in the fast time rift would not last into the night. I was coming down the slope to report this grave news to Joyra when I saw a terrifying sight. The windmills ground to a halt, the turbines seized their whining, and the thick, life-giving wall of fog roiled and dissipated on the wind. I started to run until I saw Urza, Karn, and Teferi standing there, having just emerged, alive from the time pit. The crowd of students let out a spontaneous whoop and surged up around the three refugees. I hurried down toward them until I saw another knot of young folk clustered quietly around Joyra's wheeled cart. In the next moments, I reached her side. Her eyes were shut, her hands limp at her sides, but blessed breath coursed smoothly in her chest. She stayed awake until they emerged, one of the students said with quiet reverence. And then, a moment later, Rest, dear girl, I said fondly stroking the sweaty hair from her forehead. Sleep a while more. We'll wake you again. We'll always wake you again. Baron, Mage Master of Talaria. <laughs>